Thanks for joining us for this episode of 13. We want to start by thanking our new patrons, Jessica Jaramillo, Sally Anton, Lou Monticello, Susan Hall, Kaylee, Heather Riley, Michael Sweeney, Rhiannon, S.A. Jinx, Sean Gary, Sarah Parvis, and Shelby Scott from Scare You to Sleep. We couldn't do this without you. Patrons get access to our Patreon-exclusive Discord, where you can chat with us about the show or whatever else is on your mind. This month, we've been sharing spooky photos and not-so-spooky photos of everyone's pets. If you want to show us your four-legged friends, join the Patreon and join the fun. You'll also have access to the Patreon-exclusive second monthly reading, bloopers, behind-the-scenes audio, and weekly updates on the show. Stickers, t-shirts, coffee mugs, too. Sign up to support the show at patreon.com forward slash 13pod. This month, we're joined once again by our very dear friend of the show, Shelby Scott. You'll remember Shelby from previous episodes, and we are so thrilled to have her back. You can find Shelby's podcast, Scare You to Sleep, exclusively on Spotify. That's right, it is so good that Spotify had to get her on their team, and it really is that good. I've been a listener long before we actually knew Shelby. You can find a link to Scare You to Sleep in the show notes. We also have another very dear friend of the show back with us this month, Emma Shirjarko. You've heard Emma on Wolf 359, and more recently on Pairing, a podcast that pairs wine with arts and culture, and it is delightful. You can find Pairing wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll have a link in the show notes too. This month, you can hear me and Brooke out in the wild on different podcasts. Brooke was a guest on the delightfully funny improv comedy show, This Is Y'all Come Back. I know that you're used to us being spooky, but Brooke and the rest of the Y'all Come Back team are hilarious. You can find her episode titled Origami Cranes, Sensual Phone Lines, and Mariana Trench. And of course, there'll be a link in the show notes. And you can find me on the Horror Movie Talk podcast entitled Horror Movie Talk. We discuss a movie that's been on my watch list for a long time, The Dark and the Wicked. And I won't tell you why it's been on my watch list or what I loved about it. For that, you'll have to go listen to Horror Movie Talk wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, there will be a link in the show notes. It's been great fun uh, getting out there on other shows this month. And with that, on with the show. I'm going to tell you a love story, but it's not what you think. I grew up in a small town where the Ohio and Mississippi rivers meet. It's a place where everyone knows everyone else. I didn't really make friends as a kid. Everyone I knew had always just been there. I'd known them so long that I don't actually remember meeting them. Most of the people I knew were content to grow up and settle down right there in the same town where we'd always lived. But not me. I always saw myself ending up somewhere else. So when I was accepted to a university in Louisville, I was beyond excited. When move-in day came, my parents helped me unload everything into my dorm room, 
we got lunch near campus, and then they said their goodbyes and pulled away. And I was on my own, far away from everyone I'd ever known. I didn't anticipate how hard it would be to meet people. I'd never done that before. And it turns out, it doesn't come all that naturally, at least not for me. In my imagination, I saw myself moving seamlessly into my new life. But I hadn't thought about this part, the beginning, the transition. Everyone was so different from the people I'd known back home. I blended in well enough, but I didn't feel like I really belonged here. I felt like I would be found out any minute. That was 10 years ago, and those first few weeks at university were the longest and loneliest in my life. But slowly, I started to meet people, and as I fell into the routine of college life, maybe I still didn't feel at home, but I didn't feel like an imposter either. The days were getting shorter, and the air got cold at night. My university had a little tradition every October. In the week leading up to Halloween, they hosted a series of lectures on the supernatural. And every year, it drew a big crowd. There's always a scientific, literary, or historical context. They don't just give a university platform to a bunch of crackpots. I've always loved a good ghost story, but none of my new friends were interested. So, I went by myself. Each night, they lined up guest speakers with a supernatural element to their professions. Before the guest speakers came out, one of the university's professors would take the stage and warm up the crowd by telling a local ghost story. Of course, the first one was about Waverly Hills, the huge abandoned tuberculosis sanitarium on the south end of the city, believed to be one of the most haunted places in the country. Aside from Waverly Hills, there were a smattering of supposedly haunted houses in the Highlands District, a cursed cemetery where nothing grows, even a phantom riverboat. Each day they told a new one, so I kept coming back every night. I should tell you that I'm not actually a believer in ghosts or the supernatural. I just enjoy the stories and that little rush of adrenaline I get walking back to my dorm in the dark, the remnants of that story in my mind. Each night of the week had been building up to and culminating in the final night of the Halloween lecture series. My last class was already on that side of campus, so I went straight to the lecture hall. I was one of the first people there, but I didn't mind. I found a seat and spent the next little while scrolling through my phone as the auditorium slowly filled up around me. When I looked up again and scanned the room, I noticed one of my classmates in the next section over. She noticed me too. I thought about going over to say hi, but just then, some of her friends arrived and they all sat together. The lights dimmed, and after a brief introduction, I was surprised to see one of my professors Dr. Abby Willow, come up to the stage. It was the professor that I shared with my classmate, the one I'd seen across the room before her friends arrived. Dr. Willow came to the mic, and she introduced herself. 
Thank you. Thank you all for being here. It turns out that in addition to teaching sociology, she also researches the supernatural. She's written books, and she's appeared in several documentaries on the subject. And she was here to talk about a ghost story that takes place in the neighborhood just off campus in a part of town called the Old City. The story began back in 1963 with the death of a man named John Blake. John's story was a tragic one. A year before his death, John's wife, Summer, left him for another man, taking their daughter with her. She was engaged to marry the new guy, and they moved into a house on Brook Street, just a few blocks over from where John still lived in their old house. But not long after they moved in, Summer's fiancé left her, and now she and John were both alone. Now, everything that happens next is subject to debate. What we know for sure is that on February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1963, John Blake walks into a florist shop on St. Catherine Street and gets a bundle of daisies. Maybe he's overcome with the spirit of Valentine's Day. Maybe he's lonely. Maybe he wants a chance to get his family back together. He pays for the flowers and walks outside. By all accounts, he forgets to look up as he steps out to cross the road and finds himself directly in the path of oncoming traffic. So, John and his flowers never make it to their intended destination. That's where one story ends. But another story begins. Dr. Willow went on to describe a series of hauntings that began shortly after the death of John Blake. A couple months later, John's ex-wife looked over to her window in the middle of the night, and she saw a face staring in at her. She screamed and flipped on the lights, and it was gone. It happened again, and she ran outside to confront him, but she didn't find anyone. A few weeks later, it happened again, and this time she called the police. They looked around the house and the neighborhood, but didn't find anything. At about the same time, a mysterious figure started showing up outside that florist shop. A man that would stand and stare inside. But as soon as they opened the door to see what he wanted, he would disappear. They'd take their eyes off him just for a moment, and when they looked back, he was nowhere in sight. On their own, they can be dismissed, written off as a peeping Tom and a strange character outside a shop. But the occurrences kept on. Summer Blake and her daughter had rearranged the house after her fiancé left, and all those changes, and now this creep in the window, had pushed them to the edge. They moved out of that house on Brook Street, If you'd been dealing with a peeping Tom, you might think that this would be the end of it. But the sightings kept happening. Throughout the years and the decades that followed, residents in that house still report seeing a face in the window. And that shop, where John Blake bought flowers before he stepped into traffic. A few years later, it closed down and the building was empty for a long time. And then it became a bakery. And now, it's a laundromat. 
But people still notice a strange figure outside on the sidewalk until they look away. And when they turn back, it's like he was never there. So, what's John Blake's spirit doing? His wife passed 15 years ago. So why is he still trying to finish that errand? Why is he stuck replaying that last day, trying to finish what he started? Dr. Willow started bringing her story to a close. I looked around for my classmate and her friends, but they'd already left. The following Monday, when we had Dr. Willow's class, we made eye contact as class began, and afterward, we sort of awkwardly waved and walked up to one another. Her name was Kat, and it was her first year too. We both had a break before our next class, and we decided to get lunch. The conversation quickly came around to Dr. Willow's talk last week. Kat loved all things supernatural. And, unlike me, she was a believer. She'd always been fascinated by the paranormal. She kept it hidden in high school. But now that she was making a fresh start, she embraced it. In fact, she'd known about Dr. Willow before she came to school here. So when she was accepted, she'd specifically sought out her classes. The class we were taking had nothing to do with the paranormal. It was a sociology class. But I think Kat was hoping that somehow it would bleed over a little. But Dr. Willow kept that side of her work separate from her teaching. My conversation with Kat drifted toward the ghost story of John Blake. She'd already heard the story, but last week was my first time. Before we had to split up, Kat said it would be fun to go exploring the old city, to look for the places in the starry, and maybe catch a glimpse of John Blake himself. I'd been thinking the same thing, but I hesitated to bring it up. I didn't want her to think that I was asking her out. But since she'd mentioned it first, I wasn't worried that she'd think it was a date. Kat was out of my league, and there was something kind of liberating in that. When you know that nothing's going to happen, you can just let your guard down. It was a good feeling. And I think I'd made a new friend. That Saturday, we met up at the edge of campus and started walking. It was the first week of November, a cool afternoon. The leaves had come down completely, and they were caught up in the wind skirting down the streets and alleyways. The shadows got longer, and the sky grew a deeper shade of blue. Once we started walking, the conversation flowed easily. Seeing as how we were out looking for a ghost, she'd asked if I'd heard the whole story of the ghost of John Blake. I was intrigued. I told her I hadn't. She only told a little bit of it last week. There's way more to it. I asked Kat if she really believed the story, and she gave me a look. Do you believe it? It was time for me to confess that even though I loved the stories, I didn't really believe them. Maybe it was just some creep looking in the window. And when the neighborhood kids saw all the police coming again and again, they started making up stories to explain it. Maybe they even started doing it themselves. 
That's how neighborhood legends get started. Kat gave me a playful smirk. And with all the confidence in the world, she said, I'm about to change your life. Wait, if there's a video, why didn't Dr. Willow mention it or show it? It's a whole thing with the university. She has to rein it in when she's on their time. Kat was already pulling up the video on her phone. So, a few years ago, someone bought the house. And of course, they know the stories about it, so they install a doorbell cam and security cameras along the side of the house. And one night, just like all the people who lived there before them, they look up and they see a face in that window. So this new guy, he's ready for it. He's been waiting for it to happen. He jumps up and runs down the hall, out the back door, and around the side of the house. And there's no one there. He goes out front. Nothing. And this is where the camera comes in. He goes back inside and pulls up the footage. Cat handed me her phone. The camera angle was up high. And you're looking down at the side of the house. Then you see someone come into frame. They walk right up to the side of the house. And they stare straight into the window. They're not even trying to be sneaky. There's a rough edit on the video. And the timestamp jump forward by several minutes. He's still standing there. Watching whatever's going on inside. And then... You see someone running around the back of the house. He's absolutely flying around the corner. And then he stops. He scans all around the side of the house. He's just a few feet away from him. He looks right at the guy. And it's clear from the footage. He can't see him. The guy looking in the window just keeps doing what he's doing, like nothing's happening. And then the homeowner runs toward the front of the house, and he's out of frame. He comes back. He walks right by the guy again. He still can't see him. And then, the stalker turns his head toward the homeowner, watches him for a couple of seconds. You see his head turn, tracking his movement. Once he's back inside, the stalker just turns and walks out of frame. Okay, I'll admit that that footage was compelling. But footage can be faked, right? Hang on, there's more. Kat took her phone back and pulled up another video. This time... It was security footage from inside a laundromat. It's another high angle, looking down at the door. It's propped open, and someone walks out. A few seconds later, something strange happens. Cat had to point it out at first. A shadow on the ground. As though it were being cast by someone who wasn't there. I'm thinking to myself that it could just be a mote of dust in front of the lens. Wait for it. The shadow moved around the floor, making its way up and down the aisles of washing machines. 
But then, near the edge of the frame, it passes in front of a mirror. And when it does, for a split second, the reflection of a man walks past, but only in the mirror. It startled me and I almost dropped her phone. What do you think now? After a couple of hours, we went back to Kat's building and we stood out front for a while and then we traded numbers. Maybe next time we should try to stake out the house or the laundromat. The theory is that he walks back and forth every day, but for some reason, you can only see him through glass, a mirror, a window, a camera lens. I want to be the first person who films him walking from the laundromat to the house. I want to be able to prove it. Why do you think he's still trying to win her back? Dr. Willow said she's been gone for 15 years. Shouldn't that be the end of it? My best guess is that maybe he doesn't know that she's gone. Or maybe with all the time that's passed, he doesn't remember what he's doing anymore. He might just be walking back and forth between those two places out of routine. Just because... It's what he's always done. A part of me hopes that Kat's right. This poor guy trying to win back the love of his life, but she's already long gone. Maybe it's better if he doesn't remember at all. It's sad, but let's be honest. You don't win back your ex-wife with a bundle of daisies. Go for roses or something that has a romantic meaning attached to it. I didn't know flowers had meanings. Boys never do. We saw each other after class twice a week. And we made plans to go walking around the old city again. I still wasn't convinced that any of this was real. But I liked hanging out with Kat. And planning to go exploring, ghost hunting, it was exciting. I pulled up a few of Dr. Willow's lectures and just let them play in the background while I was doing something else. I was curious to know why Kat was so drawn to her. Why do you think that some people don't cross over? What causes a ghost in the first place? That's the real question, isn't it? It seems to have something to do with tragedy. I have a feeling, and I can't prove it or offer any evidence for it. It's just a feeling. But I think that a person can become so sad that it breaks the world a little bit. And when someone dies in that state, something happens. Something stays behind. And it just lingers. Something broken in the universe. And I don't think we can help it move on because we don't know how to fix that. I think it just has to resolve itself. The next few weekends, we explored different parts of the neighborhood, imagining the different routes he could take to get to the Brook Street house from the laundromat, looking for clues along the way, watching for ghostly reflections in the storefront windows. It got colder as we entered December. Each week, as our normal meeting time approached, 
I expected to get a text from Kat saying that it was too cold or something else had come up. But she was committed to this project. Honestly, I felt like I was mostly just along for the ride. Each week, we'd make a plan when we got started. But most of the time, we weren't theorizing about ghosts or spirits or the afterlife. We just talked about life, friends, plans, getting used to college life, normal stuff. Early on, I got the impression the cat had a lot of friends on campus. But I think she just seemed like the kind of person that would have a lot of friends. Kat had kind of become my best friend at school. Was it possible that I was hers too? As December wore on, we changed our plan a little bit. We took turns keeping our cameras open as we walked. If there was anything to find, this would be more effective than just watching for reflections in the windows as we passed. Remember, this is 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, phone batteries weren't as good as they are today. Kat was feeling disappointed. And before we parted ways, she asked me what I thought about letting Dr. Willow in on what we were doing. Maybe she could give us a little advice or point us in the right direction. Something happened when she mentioned bringing our professor into the loop. I suddenly felt self-conscious and really exposed. I felt embarrassed and kind of protective. This was supposed to be our thing. Not to mention, she was an honest-to-God expert on the subject, and we were just kids messing around in our free time. Kat could sense my hesitation. You know what? Never mind. It was a dumb idea. She likes to keep all this separate from teaching anyway. I felt bad. I hadn't told my other friends what I spend my time doing on the weekend. They know about Kat, but they don't know how much time we spend together, or what we do. I couldn't escape the guilt for letting her down. The rest of the week was uneventful. And then I got a text from Kat. Okay, don't be mad. She could have just written the entire thing in one message. But Kat is a serial texter. She doesn't just write the whole thing out and then press send. She sends a new message for every sentence. So, I told Dr. Willow what we were doing. I know we weren't going to tell her yet, or at all. But I thought maybe she would know what kind of camera to use. Instead of our phones. Another message came through. It was a screenshot of Dr. Willow responding to her email. Hi, Kat. Thanks for reaching out to me. I'd be happy to help. Stick around after class tomorrow. Can you stay after class tomorrow? I had a feeling that was hard to pin down, and it didn't feel rational. Of course I wanted to help Kat figure this out. I pushed that feeling away and tried to sound excited. Yeah, I can definitely stay. The next day, Kat and I sat together in class. Afterward, we went to the front and waited for the other students to leave. 
Dr. Willow saw us approaching and asked, louder than I would have liked, if we were her ghost hunters. I fought the urge to look over my shoulder and see if anyone was still in earshot. Kat was unfazed. She jumped right in, telling her how we'd been spending our time. Dr. Willow nodded along. I think I'd expected her to be kind of condescending, patronizing even, but she seemed genuinely interested. I let Kat do the talking, and when she was finished, there was a little pause while Dr. Willow put her thoughts together. What made you look into John Blake? We were at your talk during Halloween week. Well, I was only able to cover the very basics. I trust you've looked deeper into the story? I actually saw you talk about it on TV when I was in high school. And then we heard you at Halloween, and it brought it all back up. Well, you've come at a very interesting time. How can I help? Kat explained that she wanted to figure out why he was still here. After his unfinished business was over. Kat admitted that deep down, she hoped to figure this out and help him cross over. Dr. Willow listened patiently and only spoke up when Kat was finished. Well, I think that's a very noble goal. What do you think it is? What do I think is keeping him here? I have a theory, but it's very secret and very sensitive. I don't know that I should tell you just yet. Kat made a face that I don't know how to describe. There was intrigue disappointment, and determination all rolled together. Dr. Willow seemed to be considering something. You know, the sightings have been ticking up the last couple years. That can be an indicator of something big on the horizon. We see the most activity at the beginning and end of a haunting. Maybe he's ready to pass over all on his own. What do you think would make him pass over on his own? That would give too much away. Tell you what. The story begins and ends with the Brook Street house. With that window. I saw a gleaming in Kat's eye. And I have to admit, I felt something too. I've already said too much. You seem like smart kids. I need you to make a promise to me. She looked around and reached for a pen and a scrap of paper. I can't tell you what it is, but I'm going to write it down and put it in this envelope. If you figure it out, the first thing you have to do is come here and open this envelope. That's the condition for my help. We both agreed. You're making this promise. You'll do whatever this says if you figure it out. We agreed again, more emphatically this time. Dr. Willow sealed the envelope and stuck it in her desk. Well then, I look forward to seeing what you figure out. Dr. Willow said that it began and ended with the Brook Street house, so we had somewhere to start. It was easy to figure out which house it was, and then... Rather than spending the weekend wandering the old city, we put all of our focus on that house. And every free night we had, we parked on the street 
and set up a wide-angle camera to capture the neighborhood. And then, we waited. The camera was almost a 180-degree shot. You could see straight ahead, and you could see right out the driver and passenger side windows. The story said that you should be able to see him through any lens, and glass would do. And whatever we saw, we'd have the camera to capture it. We did this for weeks, and we filled the time with conversation. I told Kat about how I'd always felt out of place in my hometown, like I belonged somewhere else. But now that I was here, I didn't feel at home either. Kat told me about feeling guilty for going to school somewhere so far from home. She and her mom were on their own for as long as she could remember. Kat said that she overheard her mom on the phone one night when she was a kid, talking about how a parent's biggest fear is dying before their kid is old enough to remember them. She could have been accepted somewhere closer, but she came here because of Dr. Willow. Kat called her mom almost every night, afraid that she'd think she was forgetting her. When Kat and I first met, she was way cooler than me. And I felt like I had to not impress her exactly, but earn her time. But these last few weeks, hanging out in the car while we watched for the ghost of John Blake, it was refreshing to just sit in comfortable silence. It felt good. Our last night on campus before winter break, Kat fell asleep in the passenger seat. I stayed awake watching the house, looking up and down the street. Old houses, built before the turn of the last century. The houses came right up to the sidewalk, and trees hung over the street. There were Christmas trees and windows. Off in the distance... I could see the big stone tower of an old church on St. Catherine Street. It felt ancient and timeless. Those nights in the car were the first time that I felt at home in the city. It turns out that it wasn't about where I was. It was about who I was with. I glanced at the camera display to check the battery level. And that's when I saw it. In the display, I could see Kat asleep in the passenger seat. But outside the window, there was a dark figure. Darker than the night around it. I slowly turned my head and looked out the window. There was nothing there. I looked back at the display... And in the time I looked away, the figure had closed the distance to the car. And its face was right outside the window, looking in straight at me. I froze. Its features were hard to make out. It's like a shadow covered the whole front of him even though there was nothing there to cast one. I looked away from the display 
for just a moment. And when I looked back, he was gone. I woke Kat up and told her what I saw. We went back to her place and pulled up the footage. And there it was, just as I saw it. A thought occurred to me. I'd been able to see the ghost on camera, but not with the naked eye. You're supposed to be able to see him through glass. I should have been able to see him in the passenger side window when he was looking at me. So, if I couldn't see him through the window tonight, had we missed him every other night? We'd kept all the files from the nights that we were out there, and we went through them one by one. And that's when we saw something that made my blood run cold. In every one of these videos, that figure walked right up to the car and put its face against the window. He'd been watching us the entire time. That night I laid awake, the lights on the street casting shadows on the ceiling. We were supposed to be out of the dorms by noon, so when the first hints of morning came through the window, I knew that I'd be driving home on no sleep. Even though I was exhausted, I was happy to be spending two and a half weeks far away from the old city. Kat sent the video to Dr. Willow, and then she went home to Indiana for the break. Kat and I messaged each other the entire time we were away on break. We didn't talk that much about the ghost of John Blake. Mostly, we talked about what was going on back home. We sent memes, friend stuff. I was glad to see my family, and I spent New Year's with old friends from high school. I spent most of that New Year's party wishing the cat was there. At the stroke of midnight, I got a Happy New Year text from her and it made me smile. After the new year came, I was feeling restless. My desire to be away from the old city, the initial shock of that night in the car, it was fading, and the boredom was getting overwhelming. Also, I missed my friend. A few days later, We were back at school, and we fell into our old pattern right away. Dr. Willow sent us a follow-up email, asking if we wanted to meet and talk about the video we'd sent her. We agreed, and the next night, we found ourselves walking through one of the classroom buildings, toward the lecture hall, where Dr. Willow taught. It was only 6 p.m., but it was dark outside and the building was mostly empty. It felt different than the bustling hallways and bright natural light we were used to during the day. Our footsteps squeaked and echoed. We entered the lecture hall from the back, and it was dimly lit. The big skylights that bathed the place in natural light during the day were dark now. It was eerie and ominous, somehow fitting for Dr. Willow. After a quick exchange of pleasantries, 
she started peppering us with questions. We answered them as best as we could, but the video probably spoke louder than anything we had to say. You know, when I first moved here and learned about John Blake, I did exactly what you two were doing. I staked out the Brook Street house. I staked out the laundromat. Back then, there wasn't nearly the evidence there is now. None of the video footage existed yet. I actually begged the owners of that laundromat to put up cameras, even offered to have them installed myself. He knew the story, and he'd even seen him standing outside a time or two. And he didn't want anything to do with it. Didn't want to scare away customers. Just wanted to go about his day and try to ignore the strange man that could only be seen through the glass. Kat and I looked at each other, unsure if we were supposed to respond. I never saw a goddamn thing. And here you two go, capturing him on video every night for days on end. What do you think that means? I think it's building towards something. This is a lot of activity. What do you think our next step should be? I can't say much more. She pulled the envelope out of the desk, the one where she'd left instructions and made us promise to keep them if we figured out why he was still here. You're on the right track. But don't forget this. Come here first thing before you talk to anyone else. She put it back in the drawer. Remember, everything about John Blake begins and ends with that house, with that window. We turned to leave, and Dr. Willow said one more thing on our way out. Oh, and if you spot him again, for the love of God, follow him. That weekend... We met up and walked into the old city for the first time since that night in the car. A fresh snow had fallen the night before, and there was a bitter wind blowing against our backs. A few minutes later, we were approaching the Brook Street house. We knocked, and a man came to the door. He looked vaguely familiar, but I couldn't place him. Kat just started talking. She did that when she got anxious. She just filled the air with words. She'd only been talking for a few moments when he cut her off and pushed the door open. Come on in. It's cold. We looked at each other and then scurried inside. He closed the door behind us. Abby told me you'd be coming, he said. Who? I asked. He gave me a look and then corrected himself. Abby Willow. Apparently, Dr. Willow had told him about us six weeks ago, the same day we'd met with her after class. He told us that they'd met years ago when he first moved into the house and posted that footage he'd caught of the ghost in the window. They'd kept in touch ever since. And that's when I recognized him. He was the guy in the video Kat showed me on our first walk through the old city. He showed us around the house and told us the story, the way that it had been told to him by the previous owner, a story passed down to each new occupant.
When we got to the room with the window, I was surprised at how small it was. I'd expected it to be bigger, more eerie, but it was just a little side room off the main hallway. Maybe an office or a child's room, a library in another time. But it was just storage now. The window itself was covered in cardboard and taped up. After we went back to Kat's place, we sat on her bed and leaned against the wall. I felt like we were missing something big. I don't know how long I stared straight ahead at the wall across from us before I felt a weight on my shoulder. Kat had slumped over, dozing off and fading fast. She leaned against my arm and I leaned against her too and closed my eyes. My thoughts returning back to the last thing the man on Brook Street said before we left his house. Let me know what you find out. I haven't seen him in a few days, but it's getting worse. Later that night, back at my dorm, I tried looking up police records from the Brook Street house on the city's website. I wanted to know how much worse it was getting. What was the normal amount of sightings compared to what's happening now? The police reports were only digitized back to 2003. So, the next day, I went to the Central Precinct to find out how to access police records from the pre-digital era. They sent me to City Hall. There, a very helpful man set me up in an empty office and brought me boxes of files. All the open records from that block of Brook Street dating back to the 1920s. I only needed to go back to the 1950s. I was surprised that there were two years between the first and second police reports. After that, they came back to back for several months. 1961, and then nothing again until April 1963. And then May, twice in June, twice in August, and so on and so on. And then they stopped. I suppose that's when Summer Blake and her daughter moved out. The house was empty for a while, but the reports picked up again a few years later. But they were sparse, once every couple years. It looked like Dr. Willow was right. The increased activity happens at the beginning and at the end. Except, that didn't exactly line up. That first police report... Why did it take two years between the first and second sightings? I opened up that first file and started reading. It took a moment for me to understand what I was looking at. This wasn't a file about a sighting of the ghost of John Blake. No. This report happened while John Blake was still alive. He'd been stalking that house long before he died. I called Kat. She needed to see this right away. When Kat arrived, I gave her the old police report and told her what I'd found. 
She started reading, and I saw her expression, reacting in real time. I couldn't shake the image of John Blake, the man, creeping up to that window, looking in after everyone was asleep, watching his wife from outside the house. Oh my God. And I couldn't imagine him having the audacity to show up with a bundle of daisies after stalking her. Cat was quiet for a moment. I don't think that's what happened anymore. I don't think he was stalking his wife. All of a sudden, a cascade of thoughts ran through my mind. Summer Blake and her daughter had rearranged the house after her fiancé left them. The room was smaller than I expected. Maybe a child's room in a past life. You don't win back your ex-wife with a bundle of daisies. You don't bring your wife daisies on Valentine's Day. You bring them to your daughter. John Blake hadn't been stalking his ex-wife. He was visiting his daughter. I put the files back in their boxes while Kat started typing out an email to Dr. Willow, telling her we'd figured it out. Outside City Hall, the sky was turning to night and streetlights were reflecting the snow. While Kat drove us back to campus, I googled John Blake's daughter. She was living in a long-term care home. On a whim, I called and asked if I could speak to her. They asked if I was a family member, and I lied and told them I was. I was put on hold, and the nurse on duty picked up. She told me that if I was going to visit, it needed to be tonight. Kat got an email back from Dr. Willow. It just said three words. Remember your promise. We ran down the hallway to the classroom building where Dr. Willow taught, greeted by that eerie light as we pushed open the door to the lecture hall. The room was empty, but down in front, on Dr. Willow's desk, there was an envelope torn open and a folded piece of paper sitting out on top. Cat picked it up and read it. I saw her eyes welling up as she handed it to me. Leave her alone. Let her go in peace. We kept our promise that night. We sat in that empty lecture hall for a long time, side by side, and I felt Kat's head on my shoulder again. But this time, we were awake. I knew what she was thinking. I remembered something she said that night in the car on Brook Street, back when this all felt new. A parent's biggest fear is dying before their kid is old enough to remember them. And I remembered what Dr. Willow said. I think a person can become so sad that it breaks the world a little bit. We never spoke to Dr. Willow after that, but sometimes we'd see her down a hallway or across a room, and we'd make eye contact for a moment, 
and she'd give us a conspiratorial look. Later that week, Kat and I met for lunch. We'd had a few days to process it all. I walked with her to her next class, and I asked her, What now? What do you mean? The ghost of John Blake had been the foundation of our friendship. It's all we've done for the last year. You worried I'm going to ditch you now that we don't have a ghost to chase? I don't know. We've only ever been chasing ghosts together. Well, I guess we don't really know that he's crossed over, do we? We should probably keep looking. Just in case? I think that's a good idea. See you this weekend? Kat and I stayed friends for the rest of college. Then, she went back to Indiana to be close to her mom. As for me, I'm still here. And it turns out, I'm pretty good at meeting people these days. I met the woman who had become my wife a few years ago. And we have a daughter now. I still think about that winter all the time. And I think about John Blake. I can see him. All those years he spent wandering the old city. Walking down St. Catherine to the house on Brook Street. Where he used to talk to his daughter through the window. And then all those years afterwards. His spirit lingering there. The city changing around. The florist turning into a bakery, and then a laundromat. Walking the aisles of washing machines. Slowly forgetting. Trying to remember why he was still here. Staring into that empty window in a long, empty house. Something he couldn't understand. Something that compelled him to keep coming back. I don't know the mechanics of it. How he ended up stuck in this world for too long. But I think I know why it happened. I think maybe a girl just needs her dad. Thanks for joining us for this episode of 13. If you like what you've heard, stop what you're doing and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This has been A Ghost in the Old City, written and narrated by me, Ian Epperson. Cat was Shelby Scott. Dr. Willow was Emma Shajarko. Brooke Jeanette played the student in the lecture hall. Editing and sound design by Liz Walker. Music by Kayla Britchie. With assistance from Bridget Howard. Our producer-level patrons are Rick Linville, Tattooed Fox, Rhiannon, and Sean Geary. Thanks for your support. Our Patreon partners get access to an exclusive Discord channel to chat with the creators and a second monthly reading. Merch, bloopers, behind-the-scenes content, and weekly updates on the show. We're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at some version of 13Pod or Pod13. Just look for the logo. Seriously, come say hi. We'll have links to all of them in the show notes. 
And finally, if you want to submit a story to be performed on the show or contact us about anything else, get in touch at info at 13podcast.com. Again, it'll be in the show notes. Bridget Howard has some daisies for you. Thanks for listening. See you next month. <laughs>